there's a ton of videos that just don't hit the first time around. And it just comes down to fixing the hook, which is actually the same thing for ads. Your seconds, you know, two and a half seconds to 12 could be perfect. But if you miss the first two and a half seconds, it's not going to get any engagement. I was at dinner with Isaac a few weeks ago in Austin and somebody made a joke of like, oh, what if we come short on the revenue goal for mini katana? He was like, fuck it. I don't care. We'll just make some more videos. It'll be fine. This is Limited Supply, the place for refreshingly real takes on what D2C is really like. We're your hosts, Nick and Moyes. Let's start talking about money. Limited Supply listeners should think about adding a mobile app to their marketing mix. Mobile apps can be customized by Tapcart, and they can improve your retention strategy and make your customers stickier. And it'll provide a really smooth way for customers to shop online, and it's the best way to engage customers wherever they are. Limited Supply listeners can get two months free at tapcart.com slash limited. We're recording at the end of February. Bunch of stuff just happened. Grow LA is over. You were the MC there. You made a billion dollars while you were MC. I love it. It was such a good... It was great. I loved it. Uh, <laughs> look at the smile you've got on your you face. the biggest smile of my I face. really hope people are watching this on YouTube and not listening to <laughs> Apple Podcasts because your smile is like guilty and proud at the same time. Yep. Okay, we're a bunch of stuff to chat about. We're talking about uh, Grow LA. We'd love to talk a little bit about Mini Katana because those guys were there at the dinner last night. Yeah. Some stuff about DDC brands and uh, being on Amazon. But before all of that, I want to start with this really quick thing about Curie and the Today Show. So Sarah, who, you know, Sarah, who runs a deodorant brand called Curie. Of course. She was on the Today Show this morning and she called me a couple days ago and she's like, we're going to be on the Today Show. We know we are going to be on there and we're not sure what to do because we're running low on inventory. So should we waitlist ourselves or should we do pre-orders or should we just accept money and then email everyone and say, hey, look. We're back ordered. Should we give you a refund or what should we do? And was this just a uh, normal GMA or this was like deals and steals? This was the Today Show. I'm not sure. Oh, I think okay. it was normal Today Probably Show normal. and not deals and steals or anything. Got it. So uh, ultimately, we had this qu- a quick conversation and she's like, great, I'm going to accept I'm gonna accept orders and not tell anyone that we're low on inventory. And then I'm going to go back to all of these customers and email them right away and say, hey, look, we're out of inventory. It's going to take us two weeks to ship this thing. Do you want a refund? We can give you a refund right now or we can ship it. And here's 10% off your next order. Uh, So she's on the Today Show today. And for context, she was like on Shark Tank. She's been on Shark Tank. She was on Good Morning America. She's on QVC all the time. All the time. So she's really good at this playbook of uh, using TV as a channel. Definitely. Yeah. She's in, she might be the best direct consumer brand at it, actually. Agreed. Or like, you know, the, the one who's the probably like newest, but using this as a real backbone of their like a growth engine. So she texted me today and she's like, we've had 1,864 orders from the Today Show. Wow. And so I was like, how does this compare to Shark Tank? Because I knew that she'd been on Shark Tank a few, she'd been on Shark Tank like a few months ago and she's been on some reruns. And so she gave me the numbers and I was like, can I share these numbers on the pod? And she's like, yes. And these are hot off the press. Like she just texted me this two seconds ago. And she says, um, here are the number of orders and site visitors, including Amazon uh, with the Today Show versus Shark Tank. So Shark Tank, when she aired on Shark Tank, she had 232,000 visitors to her website and 10,200 orders. Wow. And I don't know what her AOV is, but like, you know, I'll tell you, Native, our AOV was around $25. So if her AOV is the same as ours, that means Shark Tank, the day she aired on Shark Tank would be a quarter million dollars in revenue. Uh, So anyway, 232,000 visitors, 10,000 orders, Shark Tank. Today show, so far today, she was just on there today, day's not over, 22,000 visitors, 1,900 orders. So about an order of magnitude less in terms of visitors. So one-tenth of visitors, a higher conversion rate, 1,900 orders, uh, instead of uh, 10,200, but about a 10% of the visitors to the site. It's a really high conversion rate, 10%. That is a really high conversion rate. I think, I bet, like, I'm not surprised that it's a high conversion rate because the Today Show does a better job probably selling your product. There's no- Yeah, also the people coming are probably qualified versus Shark Tank, people are just sitting on their couch and, you know, exploring what it is. And like Shark Tank, they say bad things about you, right? And your business. And like, they're sort of like pressing on the negative parts of your business to find out if like, you know, there's resistance there. Right. So today's show, they're probably just doing a good job of selling your product and acting as a salesman. And then she says, during Shark Tank re-airs, uh, you get twenty to 50,000 visitors and surprise traffic spikes here and there when you do a Shark Tank re-air. So 10 to 25% 
of the number of visitors when you're being re-aired on Shark Tank. That's pretty impressive. Even for just re-airs. I can't believe nobody knows this stuff. I had had no no idea idea. that this happened. Uh, Wait, so it's 250,000 on the first airing of revenue of Shark Tank. So uh, 232,000 visitors, 10,000 orders. She didn't say the revenue number. To be clear, I'm speculating as to what the revenue number is because I'm using the AOV I had at Native. She's selling deodorants uh, times the number of orders she had. I saw another guy on Twitter share his Shark Tank re-air number, and he got about 3,700 sessions at 7 p.m. 7 p.m. Wow, that's not very good. Yeah, that's But that's also somebody who didn't get a deal on the show. That's pretty would, good for not getting a deal. And this, this tweet, it's, it? yeah. We he sells, uh, it's that basketball return oh, machines where you yeah. shoot the ball, and the ball drops, the ball gets, yeah, super pushed niche product. So yeah. a lot of people are going to see it and be like, that's not for me. Yeah, right. $2,000 AOV. $2,000 AOV? Yeah. That's more than the basketball hoop. Yeah. Wow. That's bananas. My reaction to all this Curie stuff is how many deodorant brands are there? 10,000. There seem to be a lot of deodorant brands. And who's in the market for a new deodorant brand? There was one I just saw. They're marketing themselves as uh, an anywhere deodorant. It's it's normal deodorant, but they're like, you can put it behind your legs, like behind your knees. Yeah. And there's one now, too, that's a paste. You can put it between your toes. Yeah. What's it called? So weird. Remember? Not to remember. Will you look it up? Is it called yeah. Lumi Deodorant? L-U-M-E? I know they carb. have been going really heavy. Carb for sure, because yeah. they're like the sweat resistant yeah, or the people like excessive sweating. Yeah, yeah. Lumi has been going really hard lately. They got acquired by Harry's, right? Yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah they've been going really hard with founder ads lately. They've been doing founder ads for a year, I think. Like every time I watch television, you see I see the founder of Shannon. I'm like, I, you know, I, I chat with Shannon. I love Shannon. She's a wonderful human being. Uh, her story is incredible. She, when she was starting Lumi Deodorant, she was a doctor and she's like, I believe in this so much. I'm going to go get a mortgage on my house in Minneapolis and take that money and invest it in my business wow. and quit my job as a doctor. And I was like, you know, you got the biggest balls of any entrepreneur I knew, I know that you're able to like quit your job as a doctor, mortgage your house and uh-huh. put that money into uh, a startup. Yeah, like I was, I wasn't even willing to spend two thousand dollars on my business, and she mortgaged her house. It was really incredible. What's but, amazing is, uh, so on Amazon, Native is the number one best-selling deodorant. Number two, three, three and four, four, five are all Lumi deodorant. Yeah, yeah. I knew she was two through four. Yeah, I didn't know she was five too. I'm sure yeah. that ecl- two through five eclipses number one. I bet two through four eclipses number one. Yeah, actually, yeah. it's just two, three, four, five, and eight. Yeah, and Native is one and nine. Yeah, that is not good for Native. Uh, but in any case, just going back to it, 250,000 visitors, give or take, $250,000 in revenue is my guess, 10,000 orders from Shark Tank, the Today Show, 22,000 visitors, 1,900 orders, using the same AOV, which I'm guessing the amount, $50,000 in revenue. Pretty solid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's great. And she's amazing, and I love her brand. In fact, my mom saw her brand. I'm not sure if mom showed you this. Yes. Uh, oh, yeah. We should mention who you are. Yes. Uh, I just yeah. realized that. <laughs> we should introduce them. We just them. started and I was just like, I, I know who you are. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just realized other people might. But I mentioned it to mom and mom's like, uh, this branding is better than yours. And then I mentioned it to Sarah and Sarah's like, yeah, my branding is better. What's yeah. also amazing is uh, Curie is at Equinox and Soul SoulCycle. I don't know how she did those deals. I'm not sure. Killer I- deal. That is like a dream deal for any brand. Uh, the Equinox one is spectacular because it looks yeah. good. I talked to Sarah about it and she's like, oh, I don't love the way it looks. I was like, this looks fantastic. It's everywhere. The branding looks great. Yeah. And in SoulCycle, they have a poster card with a QR code and a message from Sarah. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. amazing. And it's a spray deodorant, so you can you know reuse it. Yeah, it has to be a spray deodorant. Um, Barry still has like degree, like whenever I go, I obviously look at these things. Barry's has like degree, a spray Unilever deodorant that they give to everybody. Okay, Wait, let's, let's, let's introduce, introduce you really fast because I just, uh, you know, you and I have been sitting down here for a bit and I just assumed people knew who you were. Okay, you all uh, tell us about yourself, sir. Uh, no, I'm going to tell <laughs> people about yourself. Um, so, so the other person that we have here is my brother, Solomon. Solomon, you, uh, I'm going to give a quick uh, a brief history about you. Uh, you started a Facebook app. You went to Georgia Tech, worked at Microsoft. You have this great story about dad telling you to quit which I want you to tell later today, you uh, left Microsoft to start a Facebook app company called Superlatives. Or no, it was called Escut. Superlatives was one of the things on there. But the apps were Superlatives where you nominate your, like, you know, you nominate your friends most likely to succeed, but it's more funny stuff. 
and then double dare where you double dare somebody to do something on a Facebook app. I think the number one double dare was I double dare you to take a dump in a urinal. Is that correct or not? <laughs> There's something to try. I'm not I don't laughing think, at that. I, I don't think that is the number one. What was it? Do you remember? No, I don't that remember. That was the number one. That's just the one you always went to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what was the number one superlative? Do you remember? The one that I liked the most was uh, wear a bunny costume, most likely to wear a bunny costume for no apparent reason. Wow. That's most pretty good. Most likely to wear a bunny costume. Wow. Okay, yeah, that is pretty good. Okay. So anyway, so you started this... Uh, Facebook app company. Let me do the intro because I don't know where this is going. What do you mean where this is going? This is going to where you... I'm I'm waiting for the family guy story to hit. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, Go. Okay. So you uh, you started that business. You sold it. Can we talk about the deal terms or are those still confidential? Yeah. Those are... That was 10 years ago. Yeah. 2008. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. It was the year I graduated law school and I was like, fuck, I thought I was doing the cool thing and I wasn't. (laughs) Uh, So you sold the business to uh, Shervin. Actually, you go ahead and tell the story. Uh, so I started a company kind of by accident. I quit my job at Microsoft, went to Florida where our parents lived, lived in their house, got really bored, was going to move to San Francisco to start a company. And um, because I got so bored, I just started making this Facebook app and I launched it. My goal was to get a hundred people to use it that were my friends, a million people used it in a week. I thought it wasn't a real business, turned it into a real business and sold it eight months or 10 months later for... million. (laughs) (laughs) I did it with a partner. So he got 40%, I think, and I got 60%. So I think I got a million 75,000 or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. How old were you? I was 2007. 26 or 27. Wow. It's pretty solid. Uh, Yeah. Anything else you want to tell about that story? Well, wait. (laughs) (laughs) There's two other interesting things. One is, it was in 2008, so the uh, great financial crisis was happening. So our father, Wisenheim's father, was like, give me all your money. Um, <laughs> and I was like, what for? And he's like, I'm going to buy houses with it. And he bought a house for $150,000. And then a month later, that same house sold, the house next door that was the exact same, sold for $75,000. So if it was me, I would be like, I'm doing this wrong. I'm overspending. The prices are going to go down. I'm going to stop. Instead, he just kept going and kept buying more houses all the way down as, as prices kept going down. It took about a year to hit the like low point. And then even on the way back up, he kept buying them. So he kind of dollar cost average his way to buying something like 100 uh, single family resi- rentals. Wow. What was the second story? Uh, the second story, you tell it. I'm not sure what you're, referring, what you're thinking about. Uh, I thought you were talking about the co-founder I had and all of that stuff. Oh, yeah. How did you know that's what I was thinking about? Because of the evil smile on your face. <laughs> well, <laughs> I always have that. That's, you know, that's my resting evil smile face. Yeah. You had a co-founder who, like, you had ups and downs with when you were starting Escut. Yeah, we had some ups and downs. And then we sold the company, you know, super great outcome for both of us because we didn't know what we were doing and uh, made all this money even though we made a bunch of bad decisions. Uh, so we were both ecstatic financially, but we were just uh, kind of mad at each other and frustrated by the process. So he sent me this email after we sold it that was something like a hundred reasons why you suck and why this company was successful in spite of your existence. Wow. And for a little while, I would read that email every day or every like kind of three months because I thought I thought there was good feedback in there, uh, so I'd read it and internalize it, and then I stopped reading it. Uh, I remember that experience because our uh, you know when we sold the business, um, my mom was like, "Oh, you should have gotten more of it, Solomon, because you worked harder than the sixty percent." And uh, I remember I told my mom I was like, "Well, uh, you know, Solomon also got to keep all the equipment from the business, like all the laptops," and my mother <laughs> was like. Of course he did. His co-founder doesn't know how to use a laptop. <laughs> uh, you know what I always liked is when you, uh, one of the things that you put on your LinkedIn profile when you sold this business a long time ago was you made you wrote made exit happen. I really internalized that as I was building my businesses because I was like, okay, the, you got to land this ship. You can't just fly a ship mm-hmm. and uh, you know crash into the side of a mountain. You've got to find a home for it. And how I thought you know, that was really good. How do you, I wrote that on my LinkedIn profile as a result of you writing it on yours. Fantastic. How do you know when to decide when to exit? Like, what do you know when is like the 70% up the mountain that you should start having those conversations? 
Uh, before we get to that, let's talk about your second business because right. I feel uh, like that'll be the, the other thing I think that's funny about um, that whole story is uh, one time Moise and I were having a conversation and he's like, I know I can make you, you know, this is five years later. And he's like, I can make you mad by saying a single word. <laughs> and I was like, there is no way that you could do that. And then he said, the, uh, he was like, yes, I can. And then he said the name of my co-founder for that business in 2008. And I was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> you can make me bad at one word. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the second business that you started um, because it was a much larger business and probably more instrumental to your life. And then we'll get back to uh, e-commerce stuff. But you started this with actually another co-founder who was crazy, uh, crazy enough, a classmate of mine in high school. Uh, obviously, we went to the same high school. He was just my year and not your year. Yeah. Um, yeah, I started with a co-founder. I started a company called Tiny Co with a co-founder. What's interesting about the co-founder, his name's Ian Spivey. He left high school after three years instead of four years. Yeah, yeah. And of course, he was in MIT. my class. We're like, what happened to that guy? <laughs> <laughs> and then he went to MIT. I don't even know if he got a high school degree. No, I don't think he has a high school degree. He just has a college degree. He does degree. not have a high school degree. You can get a college degree without having a high yes. school degree? Okay. Yes, you, you, can. you just have to take that test. The GED? No, I don't right. think he, t I think he just does not he have just a high school degree. He just left. Yeah, he left. Wow. And it was amazing because he just left after junior year and everyone else expected for him to come back. And he didn't come back. New level for Indian parents unlocked. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, it is pretty amazing. And then he went to MIT and everyone was like, wow, great. Yeah. Anyway, so you started this business. I started a company called Tinyco where we made mobile games. They were free to play mobile games that we would monetize through in-app purchases. And we started by making our own brands, um, our own IP generally things that we call tiny blank, like tiny chef, tiny castle, that kind of thing. First it sort of is like tap resort or like tap, tap resort. right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It was first tap resort. Then we were like, oh no, our name is tiny co. We bought the name tiny co for $700. The, the domain name, tinyco.com. Yeah. Uh, that's why Moise, we chose the Moise would have been tinycom.com. <laughs> <laughs> You'd yeah. be like, I got it for seven ninety nine. dollars <laughs> right, right. Yeah. It'd be tinycos.com because yeah. it's nativecos.com. <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, we were making our own branded games. And then we uh, realized, fuck, this is really hard. Mm -hmm. We have to pay to acquire customers for our games uh, through Facebook ads. And that stopped working. So we said, let's license brands and make games using those brands. So we licensed Family Guy from Fox for $10 million. We licensed Marvel from Disney for maybe $4 million. And then we licensed- What was the first one? Sorry, you licensed what? Family Guy from Fox. For $10 million? Yes. What, tell me what that means. What is licensing for 10 million? You just give them $10 million and that's it? You walk away and you're like... We give them $10 million up front within 30 days of signing the contract. And then uh, we make the game, it generates revenue, and we give them a percentage of the revenue that the game generates. And that $10 million is an upfront payment against that percentage of the yes. revenue? Or it's $10 million plus percentage of revenue? It, $10 million is basically an advance against that revenue. Gotcha. Yeah. So the Family Guy game was $10 million up front and then they got 40% of net revenue after Apple and our advertising costs. After oh, Apple, the wow. 40% of net revenue. And how long did it take to build the Family Guy game? And what was the cost of that? I think it took 14 months to build the game and probably cost a couple million bucks, yeah. maybe a million bucks, maybe two million bucks. And then the game ge has generated, I think, $300 million in revenue. Okay. Wow. I remember when you were building these games, a dad would sometimes come into San Francisco and you'd be like, oh, we're delayed. And he'd be like, what is the problem with this company? <laughs> he'd be so angry. And then he'd call me up every day for the next year and be like, so when is this game going to be released? And I'm like, I don't work at this company. I'm a lawyer on the other coast of the country. I have no fucking idea when they're going to release this thing. And then he'd be like, what's the problem with this son of mine? He cannot release a game on schedule. You know, the calls are still the same. <laughs> Just different business. But same question. Yeah. Okay. So you launched Family Guy game. It cost ten million dollars. How much revenue did you say it generated? Three hundred million. Okay. And give me, give us a, a couple of uh, games that you launched after Family Guy. Uh, we launched a Marvel game called Marvel Avengers Academy, and then we launched a Harry Potter game. It was the first mobile game for Harry Potter called uh, Harry Potter Hogwarts Mystery. Okay. Tell us the economics of that uh, thing. Because I remember somebody had to go meet with Jake. I think Andrew Greena from your team yes. had to go meet with J.K. Rowling. Flew to London, met with J.K. Rowling and her team. I think uh, it's called the Blair Partnership. Actually, the way this really went down is 
so at TinyCo, we raise money from Andreessen Horowitz. And Andreessen would have these uh, meetings where they bring in executives from big companies and you present to them. So they brought in the CEO of Warner Brothers and uh, we presented to them and so did a bunch of other uh, Andreessen portfolio companies. And so we presented to them our Family Guy game and said, you know, we just made this game. Here's the stats. And the CEO was like, this is awesome. Why don't we work together? And Andrew Green, with all of his amazing uh, foresight, was like, we should make a Harry Potter game together. And he was like, that's a great idea. And turned to this guy on his right and was like, yo, make this happen. And then after that, we got to make a Harry Potter game. Wow, that's how fast it happened? It it went, uh, like, we'd pitched them on that idea a year earlier. And they were hemmed and hawed, and we'd follow up with them every 30 days. After the CEO was like, this is a great idea, let's make it happen. I think he sent an email to somebody, and and then that greenlit the project internally inside Warner Brothers. And so within 30 days, it was actually happening. That's bananas, because that's probably the most valuable IP in the entire world is Harry Potter. Like, never enough content. Yeah, they under um, monetize it and yeah. they underproduce the amount of toys and yeah. all kinds of content yeah. that they could for it. Okay, so uh, you make the Harry Potter app, but you sell Tiny Go at some point. Yeah, that's right. So we uh, made the Family Guy game, made the Marvel game, and then signed that Harry Potter license. And that license was, I think, a $10 million license with a 15% ref share or something like that. So less rev share than uh, Family Guy? Yes. Wow. That's crazy. I would have thought the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, we just negotiated harder because the first deal we really needed and um, this deal we felt like, okay, they're going to make this happen. We right. got a lot more leverage. So anyway, uh, we make the Family Guy game, make the Marvel game. Both those are doing well. Um, we get an acquisition offer, hire a banker, and sell the business to a company here in LA called Jam City. Okay. That was started by this guy, Crystal Wolf, who was the MySpace founder and CEO. And one of the things that was crazy was Jam City was, used to be called SGN. Yes. And SGN was actually the name of the guy who also bought your first business. Yes. So that you sold a business, two businesses to the same acquirer, technically. Yes, that's right. But they had different leaders. Uh, one was Shervin from, I forgot what fund he worked at. And then the next guy was um, Crystal Wolf. Yes, that's right. Okay, that's a good sense of your background. What do you do now? I'm mostly investing in startups and uh, real estate. Nice. Okay, so you want to talk a little bit about Grow LA aside from the, you know, yeah, because t- uh, you were the MC there. I, I yeah. came to the dinner. It was fantastic. Tell us a little bit about Grow LA and what happened. It was a lot smaller than the Grow New York event. Yeah. Uh, venue size, much smaller. I think the size was actually good. It was overpacked a little bit probably yeah. the state main stage area was probably like 115 percent full i think it was a good motivator for the people on stage who saw so many people in the seats and then yeah. also crowding around did anyone uh, say anything unexpected or were there any like gems that were dropped not really not particularly so the morning was actually the morning was cool it started with this guy aaron who started hush blankets weighted blanket company yeah Wasn't and he, the uh, release too? he was there also yeah, yeah. So him and this guy, Jake, who started a company called Midday Squares, they basically just talked about like non-traditional ways of creating content that kind of cuts through the noise. So that was pretty informative and cool. There was a couple nuggets in there, basically just like doing things that are, you know, don't do the same thing everything else, everybody else is doing. Yeah. Uh, Did they give you any concrete examples of like, hey, this was really... um... Yeah, they had two. One was Hush just launched a mattress and they had a YouTube video that they played about you know, they basically cut open other mattresses and saw that they were basically the same material as like your dish sponge. And, you know, they went on this whole journey of building a better mattress. Yeah. And then Midday Squares did one on TikTok where they got a cease and desist, I think, from Hershey's because it, their chocolate looked too much like a Reese's peanut butter cup with the packaging. And, you know, they were invited to Hershey, Pennsylvania to come and settle the case. But they said, fuck it, we're going to fight it. And they fought it basically through content. I don't know how it ended up, but wow. like they they showed the example of content. By the way, I, I saw this awesome ad for Midday Squares on Instagram. Uh, it's basically like, do you want to know why we started our chocolate business? Spite. Yeah. Nestle and four other companies own all the chocolate brands in the world. And we were just like, we want to own one. Their content in general too is very, I call it like Mr. Beastified. It's very quick cut. 
even the text that's flying in, it's there for a second, or it's, you know, there's a video within the, the text letters itself. It's not just like traditional slow moving graphics or animation type stuff. So that was cool to see. Um, the afternoon- primarily direct to consumer or brick and mortar? So Midday Square is primarily brick and mortar. Okay. Very small pieces direct to consumer. Got it. They're at Whole Foods and a bunch of other retailers. Yeah. I mean, overall, it was a great event. There were a lot of sponsors in the afternoon panels. So I'd say the quality of the questions weren't as deep. It was more like, you know, tell us about what loyalty means to you. Tell us about what a dream partnership is for you. And somebody said Beyonce. You know, there's not that many nuggets that you'll get out of that. But I would say the quality of the people in the room was super vetted. Like the the people there were nine out of 10. That's awesome. I mean, you saw my whoop score. My whoop score after yesterday was like a 16. Wow. I was I was running around the whole place all yeah. day yeah. slinging hooks pages. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, uh, mine is also a 16 today. Really? Yeah, just from working out at Barry's. Yeah. But yeah, yeah overall, Stephen Steven from Cuts, what did he say? Well, so I like that, that was, yeah, was I was really excited for that. I was supposed to moderate that panel, and then I think a sponsor filled my spot. That was the one where I was just alluding to where somebody said, what's your dream partnership? And somebody said Beyonce. Beyonce. And Steven said, well, if yours is Beyonce, mine's Jay-Z. The questions weren't like good enough to where you get nuggets out of it. Yeah. They were pretty high level. But Steven was a cool dude. That was the first time I met him. Yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah. Uh, there was a great dinner that we both attended that was sponsored by Postscript and Triple Boyle. I don't know why, but my side of the room always gets to start talking about Facebook ads. And so I it's because you start the conversation. (laughs) It's all you talking about. No, someone mentioned it. And I was like, okay, I want to, now I'm paying attention. Yeah. And so this guy that I was chatting with is like, we spent a couple hundred thousand dollars on Facebook ads a month. I like had two questions that I was really curious about. One, which was, what is your ratio of Facebook ads versus Google ads? Because I never know what your rate, what what, like good ratios should look like or what ratios should look like. And his was like four or five to one. Um, five dollars on Facebook to one dollar on Google. Yeah. And I think at Native, it was always like, you know, 15 to one. Yeah. Or like 10 to one. We never did a good job of like monetizing Google. Uh, but I think Google has gotten a lot better at ads. Like there was no performance max campaigns in right. 2017 like there are today. And the other question we talked about was Advantage Plus shopping campaigns, which have sort of been all of the rage since October, where everyone's spending on Advantage Plus shopping campaigns. And there were two people sitting to my right we were ta- I was talking to both of them about ads, and one of them was like, um, 80% of my budget is Advantage Plus shopping campaigns, and the other 20% is basically retargeting. And the other guy was like, Advantage Plus shopping campaigns worked for me in November and December. By the second half of January, they started dying down, and now we're doing maybe you know 5 to 10% of our budget on Advantage Plus shopping. Wow. Do you talk to people about that, or like, do you get to... like, what do you, Yeah, what do you there's, well, there's the Advantage Plus shopping campaigns, and then there's Advantage shopping i guess just placements yeah a lot of times for younger brands we'll do the manual setup with the advantage placements yeah yeah and then for the more mature brands they've just been ripping on advantage plus shop even recently there's been no slowdown not as far as i'm aware okay yeah okay well i thought that was really interesting and it got me excited because i like listening to him i was like okay i need to figure out I need to do a better job of understanding Google ads because I still don't do a good job of that. Yeah. Um, You know what is interesting, though, is like Facebook has so many different ways to change the way your creative looks so that based on what they think is going to perform better in the app, Google doesn't really do any of that, I don't think. But I think it's a huge opportunity for Google across YouTube and all the other properties they own. But Facebook does it in a way. I can never tell if it like helps or it hurts you know, the internal team is always like, what the fuck is this? This looks horrible. And the performance team is like, well, we trust in Facebook. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it must help. Otherwise, Facebook wouldn't do it. And they have this yeah. thing where you're creating an ad that says optimize in these four ways. Right. And everyone's uh, like, for some reason, you have to opt into it. It's not uh, yeah, it's not opt out. It's opt in to optimize. And of course, you should. And they'll like uh, take your title and they'll put a banner at the top and right. make it larger. Or they'll play music or make your image look a little bit brighter. I've never not optimized because I assume that like, you know, Facebook is going to do the things that are going to result in more sales. Like they're smart about it. Yeah. I've noticed for like a new brand launching new ads for a new brand, that stuff doesn't work at all. The optimized? Yeah. Just good old manual stuff works best. But for the brands where it has a ton of data and who's purchasing, it does work well. Do you guys ever look at like, do you know how you um, can optimize for like one day uh, view or seven day click? Do you ever play around with that to see, hey, d- 
does one of these work better than the other or not really? Like I, I always use the default. I'm never like, let me change to one day view, one day click or zero day view, one day click. I'm just like, this is the default. And I don't think it matters that much. I think view is, uh, makes over counts it. So I think using the one day click, seven day click is better. You would use zero day view, one day click or seven day yes. click. Okay. And I think Pinterest just made a change to their platform where now they're doing last click attribution. I heard about something like that, but like their attribution is like crazy. And because um, it would be like 30, 30 and one. And you're like, 30 right. days is insane. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, they would do 30 day click, 30 day view. Yeah. Usually we will just do uh, seven, I think seven day click, one day view, unless there's a reason to do otherwise. If you're spending on a ton of channels, I think one day click, one day view is the best option. Otherwise you're double counting from other platforms. Yeah. The tricky part that I don't know whether it's good or bad is when you do, when you send an email campaign on a day and, sure. um, how does the view count? Yeah. How does the yeah. view count? Yeah. Cause like someone's like scrolled past your ad so quickly, mm-hmm. but it counts it as a view. You know, what's really interesting is, uh, with Pinterest, when I was running native ads, we would see genuine organic purchases w- through ads. You run an ad and like, you know, you can have different UTM parameters at the end of an ad uh, versus an organic pin. And I'd see like a pin had, you know, 14 uh, paid sales and then three organic sales. Mm. And unlike uh, Facebook, which, you know, no post will ever have an organic sale unless it may be an Instagram one if you've got a bunch of followers. Pinterest would genuinely get organic sales, uh, which was really interesting. And I was like, you know, I, I counted that towards my paid ads because I was like, you know, the paid ads are probably driving repins, which are driving these organic sales. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if uh, other people pay attention to that. Well, Facebook won't show an ad unless you're paying to show that yeah, ad, yeah. right? That post. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas Pinterest is actually showing it organically yeah. in the feed. Yeah. It's like, you know, Facebook would 10 years ago. It's sort of like that. That's what Pinterest is still doing. I heard of a brand recently that is actually spending more money on Google than on uh, Facebook. So their ratio is 60 to 40 on yeah. Google and uh, Facebook. What do they sell? Women's clothing. Hmm. That's surprising. I feel, I feel like, like women's clothing is so like um, discovery oriented. Yeah, I was surprised. They're using like product category terms like, you know, athleisure. Yeah. And using that to drive search, uh, using searches of that to drive conversion. Actually, I think Manscaped, and I don't know this for a fact, but I would guess just based on the number of ads that I see on YouTube versus, you know, Facebook, that they're spending more money on Google than they are uh, on Facebook as well. Uh, but okay, I want to move on to two different things. Uh, first, before we get there, Salman, you wrote this thing on our agenda, which was guess what brand's stock price is up 36% in the last 12 months. Yeah. It's worth $3 billion and has a 43X PE ratio. And you told me before we started recording that this was a consumer brand. Yes. Is there another hint available or is that there's no other hints? Uh, yeah, there's a bunch of hints. Uh, it's profitable. Well, uh, there's a 43XP right, so, ratio. I know it's profitable. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, uh, okay. The, so let me just uh, set this up. So I have a trivia question, which is, this is a brand that stock prices up 36% in the last 12 months. Whereas publicly the, traded. That's publicly traded. Whereas the rest of the market has been decimated, is worth $3 billion and has... A 43x PE ratio. So a PE ratio that's higher than Facebook. Yeah, I would imagine there's growth. That's why. Uh, it has no revenue growth and no EBITDA growth is one hint. Wow. Another no revenue hint. growth or no EBITDA growth and it's a consumer brand trading at 43x? Yes. That's one hint. Luck. The second hint is it issues a dividend. Okay. Uh, the third hint is it went public in 1983. Oh, 1983. Uh-huh. It's a brand you're you're familiar with. It's a food Crocs? brand oh, okay. that you have brand. you have actually consumed. Both of you. Okay, I would have Maggie guessed. noodles. Would you say what was this? Maggie noodles. Maggie noodles. No. <laughs> 1983. I would have consumed it. It's got to be like no revenue growth. It's a candy brand. Yeah, yeah. Jesus, what's Altoid? Like I don't know enough candy brands that are. Uh, it's not Altoids. Is it mint? Or no, like, it's not a mint. It's a chocolate. It's candy a chocolate. brand. Is that a Mondelez or Mars? No, Mars is huge. Like Mars, Mars is a, you know, Mars has got a yeah. two hundred billion dollar business. It's not Hershey. It's not Baby Ruth. It's not, not, not Tic Tac. Baby Ruth, I think, is owned by Mars. Uh, no, God, I can't think. A chocolate brand. Okay, the answer is Tootsie Roll. Uh, wow. And what? Tootsie Roll for the last five years has done about five hundred million dollars in revenue every year. 
and about $60 million in net income every year. Wow. Uh, okay. And so why and do they have 2,000 employees? And for what? Are they hand rolling 2000? the tassel still? 2000 why does it have a 43 PE ratio with a dividend under 1%? That's terrible. I have no idea why it has a 43. What does that mean? 43 with a dividend Again, under so 1%. So like a PE ratio is basically like for every dollar earnings you have, what is the valuation of that business? Mm -hmm. So for instance, Facebook makes so much money and so does Apple, right? That for every dollar of earnings they have, they're only worth about 15x every dollar of earnings. Mm -hmm. So for a dollar of net profit, they're worth 15 times that. So that basically means that if you, and let's say they were worth 10 times to make numbers easier. Let's say they were worth 10 times that. For every, if you owned a share of Facebook within 10 years, they would have earned enough to justify the valuation that they have today. Mm-hmm. Let's say they're worth $400 billion in 10 years from, in the next 10 years, they will earn $400 billion based on today's earnings. So 10 years, for, like in the next 10 years, they'll actually earn $400 billion. Got it. So for every dollar, they're worth, you know, 10x that. And Facebook uh, hovers around 10 to 15. Apple usually hovers around 10 to 15 too. Uh, yeah. Fa Facebook is at 20 and Apple's at 25. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Okay. Usually, like, uh, you know, brands that are growing really quickly will, you know, it'll be a very high PE ratio because people are saying, okay, yeah, you know, Facebook may be earning $40 billion a year and it's worth $400 billion, but they're not going to go from earning $40 billion a year to $500 billion a year. Mm -hmm. $40 billion a year is so much already. But if you're like a young Tesla, you're growing so quickly. Everyone's like, okay, Tesla is making up 2% of the car market today, five years from now, 10 years from now, Tesla could be 20% of the car market. It could be so much larger. So we think you should have a higher PE ratio because your earnings are going to go up like this. Mm -hmm. So you're going to justify those earnings. Your earnings are going like this. So you're going to justify those earnings. So you have a high PE ratio. Got it. If you're a company that's not growing, you have a really low PE ratio because everyone's like all of your profit is sort of already baked in. So like Victoria's Secret Victoria's Secret has an eight PE ratio because basically there no one's like, you know what's growing really quickly is Victoria's Secret. Victoria's Secret is dying. Why do you think Tootsie Roll has a $3 billion market cap and a I've no 40 idea. PE ratio? There has to be something more going on here. I didn't do any research. Yeah. It, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, there has How'd you come across it? You just found it? Yeah. Um, thing to look up. Yeah. I looked it up because um, a friend of mine, Sean Puri, was five years ago was like, this is a company that we should short. Because nobody eats Tootsie Rolls anymore. This company is going <laughs> to die. And uh, the facts are, no, it's not going to die. It's going to keep going. Yeah, that's crazy. Anyway, great trivia question. I feel like this has got to be a segment that we know. We should keep adding this. Like, that's a lot of fun. Nick, I know we always harp on how important it is to optimize your mobile experience. Two months after a streetwear brand Rip and Dip launched their app, total sales increased by 53.2% and then another 43% the next month. App users have proven they're more diehard fans, they have higher conversion rates, a higher revenue per session, they're more likely to convert, have more lifetime value versus mobile and desktop web. Limited supply listeners can get two months free at tapcart.com slash limited. Let's move on and talk about Mini Katana. Let's go. Because oh, Isaac was at the dinner last night. That was the first time I think, or maybe the second time I've met him. Before we get into it, do, uh, do you want to talk about what Mini Katana is? Because I feel like you probably know better than every, uh, everyone else. Yeah, I've actually never been to the site. I've really enjoyed hanging out with Isaac. Yeah. As far as I know, they sell swords. They do it all through organic content. They're not allowed to run ads. And why, uh, uh, why aren't they allowed to run ads? It's a weapon. Yeah. Swords are weapons. Yeah. So Mini Katana is a, a brand that sells swords. Isaac has gotten to $10 million a year in revenue with no paid advertising. Because it's a weapon, he can't run ads. And just from making content that features the katanas and people saying, what was that in that video? And going and buying it. And specifically uses a ton of short form video. So TikTok and YouTube shorts. Yeah. In fact, I think yesterday he said he had like 300 million organic uh, views of his videos. Perfect. Like an absolute, yeah, per, an absolutely insane amount. Don't quote me on that because uh, I, I was like leaving and he was telling me that. And I was like, wow, that is a fuck ton of organic views. Yeah, I know yesterday specifically, he hit 12 million views. Just yesterday? Just yesterday. Wow. His, so his monthly goal is, for his team is to hit 300. And I think he's right above 250 right now, generally. So for context, let's put a CPM on that. If yeah. you say, hey, you've got $20 CPMs, right? Uh, so what is that? At a cost per thousand views? What is that? Is that $150,000 in free marketing? 
Or am I getting these um, wrong? I'm trying to pull up some math here. Yeah. But I, it's not going to have a $20 CPM. Like, you know, TikTok and YouTube ads don't have a, let's say a $5 CPM. Yeah. Okay. Even a $5 CPM. Uh, so 300 million organics, right? Uh, oh, wait. Is that 300 billion? Yeah, that's 300 billion. Okay. Divided by 1,000 for CPMs. So 300,000 times five. So basically $1.5 million in marketing at a $5 CPM based on all the organic views he gets. Yeah, I did the math with, uh, if you ran a conversions campaign on Facebook, a penny yeah. of view, $3 million. Yeah, uh, yeah, the conversion, uh, a penny of view. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, wow, that's- It's insane. insane. Yeah, producing the content that he's producing is not free. It's like good quality content. It's really thoughtful. He, yeah, he's tweeted about this. So he's got a team of 20 content creators that are in-house and then he uses a bunch of external uh, people also. And he finds people, the way he finds them is um, he sees people are making good content on TikTok and he reaches out to them and says, hey, you're great at this, make content for us. And so his average video costs about $300 to make. And recently uh, he had a video where some guy was using a katana to like cut a bullet in half or something. Right? Yeah, that's right. Somebody fires a bullet from a gun and uh, they take a katana and try to cut the bullet in half while it's being fired at That's him. crazy. That's insane. And apparently it took him, it took 10 tries to make that video. Only 10 tries. Wow. And on the 10th try, they he were kind of cut it. Wow, that's crazy. That's insane. I used to watch a bunch of archery videos on YouTube for no reason. And like the goal in archery is you shoot an arrow into like, you know, a bullseye and it gets in the center. And then you got to shoot another arrow that splits your original arrow in half. Sounds oh, like really? you've seen this as well, Solomon. Yeah, you're you told me this. No, oh, God, you're this <laughs> Why? I don't know. But you told me this. I'm like, please keep this out of my brain. But yeah, the goal of archery is you need you want to be able to split an arrow that you've already hit into a bullseye with another arrow in half. You want to split your original arrow in half with another arrow. Wow. And that's what that video reminded me. The other thing that's crazy about it, about him, is his number one metric is not, you know, what's our revenue, what's our CAC, what's our repeat purchase rate. He doesn't care about any of that. He just cares about number of views and the amount of watch time. That is his number one metric. And he said his goal is to get to 1 billion of content views per month at the end of the year. That's crazy. First, that's like so many content views and so crazy that it's so achievable, frankly, because it's only three times the number that he's already getting. Uh, it also reminds me, you, and, you know, you know, Mr. Beast does like 100 million views. So his content is, you know, much longer form, but he does 100 million views per drop that he has of content. So you know, billion will get 100, 100 million views on uh, for Mr. Beast. Yes. So billion is a lot. Yeah, uh, uh, no question a billion is a lot. But, you know, you were talking about KPIs and um, organic views. It reminds me of that, you know, when Facebook was launching, they were like, our number one goal is to get you to like seven friends in nine days or something like that. They're like, if you get to seven friends in nine days, you're going to use Facebook for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And so they like uh, dropped every metric that they cared about except this KPI. Do you remember that? Yeah. Was this like Chamath who was doing this? This, I think, was Chamath when he was on the growth team. Yeah, that would do this. And so they were like, this is the metric that matters. We don't give a fuck about anything else. Get seven friends in nine days and you'll use Facebook forever. You know what's amazing is TikTok always asks, every time I open TikTok, they're like, can we get access to your contact list? And I'm like, no, you will never get access to this contact <laughs> list, except one day I will accidentally click OK and they will get access to it. And so they care so much about that that they ask you every single time you open the app. I'm surprised that Facebook doesn't ask you every single time you open the app, can we allow allow tracking across all of your apps with Facebook and give us permission for this thing? Like, I'm surprised yeah. Facebook doesn't make make a lot more friction for that. Like, if I was like running Instagram and I'd be like, you have 5,000 Instagram followers, I'm going to show this to you every single time until you say yes. Because at some point, it's just going to get annoying and you're going to do it. Uh, you're going to say yes to um, allowing tracking, tracking. across yeah. apps. Yeah. I bet Apple just would stop you from doing it. Yeah. Prevent you do that every it. single time. Yeah. The, uh, the cool thing about the mini Katana content, two things. One is they have this house that they've built out. You know how LA has all these content houses with TikTokers? Yeah. yeah. They've built a short form content creator house in Alabama. Dirt cheap. Really? Like, yeah. This is why their cost of video is so, so low. The other thing he does is he has a roster of, of script writers. So he pays low double digits per script of a video, and then some high percentage of those scripts he pays for actually get shot and posted. Wow. The other interesting thing is there's a ton of videos that just don't hit the first time around, and it just comes down to fixing the hook, which is actually the same thing for ads. Your sure. seconds, you know, 
two and a half seconds to 12 could be perfect. But if you miss the first two and a half seconds, it's not going to get any engagement. Yeah, yeah. The second interesting thing is um, I was at dinner with Isaac a few weeks ago in Austin and somebody made a joke of like, oh, what if we come short on the revenue goal for Mini Katana? He was like, fuck it. I don't care. We'll just make some more videos. It'll be fine. Yeah. You know? That's what, awesome. What's amazing is I bet he's learning way faster than all the ad content. People are creating 100%. content for ads. Yeah. So he's yeah. going to be better at creating content for ads than anyone else because he's making more content and yeah. knows what the hook is faster. And well, he like, has a more direct connection to, he knows within 24 hours if the video is working or not. And it still and takes to add 72 hours. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a great point. It's also just, he has so much volume yeah. that his feedback loop is so quick. Yeah. I'm surprised there isn't an ad agency that's like, we have a house in Alabama of content yeah. creators and is applying the same strategy to making video ads. Well, Tube Science does this in LA. Like they have a massive warehouse or warehouse office studio. I don't know what it is, but they run, I think they're the fourth or fifth largest spender as an agency on Facebook. Wow. And so they'll find something that does well for brand A and apply it to the other 57 brands yeah. they're managing. Narrative does that as well. Yeah. Like they were the, they were one of the first guys to start building out like a content studio for video yep. on Facebook. Doing it in Alabama is way smarter because it's just going to cost you one-tenth the price. Right. Uh, and like, you know, you're not going to have people who leave or don't show, like, you know, like churn really quickly. The genius of this is, uh, you know, certainly what he's doing, but it's also like the first guy who's gotten around ad restrictions by creating his own organic content. Like everyone else hires influencers. You're a CBD brand. You can't advertise on Facebook. So you just hire a bunch of influencers to speak about you. No one's like, you know what I'm going to do is spin out 4 million videos to get a bunch of views and build. Like he, he's not reliant on them. You know, he's making his own things, which is really amazing. You know, Mr. Beast originally when he was making video would make videos that had a, he had a gun that he would shoot through, I think a watermelon or something along those lines, and you would see how many watermelons could a bullet go through before it would stop. Yeah. And so he's making content with, uh, you know, weapons. And then once he got to a certain scale, Google reached out to him and said, hey, love what you're doing. Get rid of the weapons. Yeah. And then uh, we're going to be able to distribute your content much more widely. And so that's why you see no weapons and no uh, swearing. His stuff is like family he, friendly. Yeah, PG. it's awesome. Good for him. Doug DeMuro is this like YouTuber that I follow a bunch uh, who's uh, like talks about cars and you know, he's been at this for uh, like a long time and he's like the way that he started is he's like, I was one of the first guys to go into CarMax and try and get a, like, you know, he had a Ferrari and he's like, I want to get a quote on this Ferrari. Like how much will you give me for this Ferrari? And CarMax is like, we'll buy your car no matter what. You don't have to buy a car from us. We'll buy your car. And so the, the max they could ever give was like $82,000 or something back then. Now it's a lot more. And so he just drove in and they're like, this is a Ferrari. They look at it, they drive it around. They like, and then they're like, okay, we'll give you the max we can give you, which is $82,000. And he's like, well, this car's worth $150,000. Absolutely <laughs> not, but it's really good content. And then he's like, everybody else in the car industry started doing the same thing. Uh, that's so cool. Yeah. And uh, Doug DeMiro just sold his business or um, I think a majority stake in the business to the Chernin Group. And he bought a Porsche Carrera GT. Yeah. And he made a video about buying it. And I don't generally watch Doug DeMiro videos. And I watch this video because it's like a video of a man realizing his lifelong dream. Yeah. And making a YouTube video about it. Yeah. Um, he, I mean, he made a video of this Porsche Carrera 10 years ago. Yeah. He's like, this is my favorite car. It costs a million dollars. Wow. He sold his business. I think he got like $37 million <laughs> in cash, $38 million. You know, the car is probably worth one. It's probably $1.2, $1.5 million. He went out and bought it. And I, I'm a big Doug DeMiro fan. I like watch all of his videos actually. And he's the only guy I follow on YouTube. And um, he's driving it a ton. He's like, I just drove it 400 miles today uh, and I drove it through a sandstorm and I'm driving it like uh, on the beach. And uh, he's like, I, this isn't a million dollar car that will be worth a million dollars when I'm done with it. He's like, this is a million dollar car that'll be worth 500,000 when I'm done with it because I'm beating the fuck out of it because I'm enjoying it. Wow. Yeah, in fact, um, he saw a Porsche Carrera GT in Denver in the middle of winter yeah, that's right. yeah. when he was in high school. And he was like, I saw a Porsche Carrera GT to his high school friends. They were like, there's no way somebody in Denver is rich enough to have one and is driving it in winter. And he was like, I bought a video camera or a camera the next day so that I could find it and show it to, to friends. So that's actually um, like the first content. Yeah, that's the first uh -huh. piece of content that he ever made was trying to 
find this Porsche Carrera GT in Denver. Absolutely crazy. I love Doug Jimmer. He's so like humble and like I, I forced you to watch a couple of his videos. Yeah. And they're a ton of fun because he gets excited about like the microphone in a Honda Odyssey that'll talk to the people in the back. And that's a lot of fun. I just wanted to tell, ask you about the mini Katana guy, yeah. which, uh, Isaac, what, what do you love about what, you, what he's doing and what do you not like about what he's doing? I love that he's basically creating his own marketing, like he's uh, creating a marketing strategy that has never existed before, which is I'm going to find a way to make cheap videos at a scale no one's ever imagined and reject the, uh, like he's an iconoclast. He rejects the philosophy of you need a really nice production studio, really beautiful people, really nice equipment. He's like, I'm going to go do this in the middle of nowhere in Alabama and create a ton of content. And so I think that's really amazing. I think the thing that I don't like about it or like that, it's not that I don't like about it is that, you know, you can't run paid ads behind it. If you could flip on paid ads in the category that he was in doing what he was doing, he would 20x his revenue in the next month. And so if I were, you know, if I were him, I'd do exactly what I'm doing. If I were somebody who admires him today and didn't have a business, I would say, let me do what he's doing in a category where I can run paid ads behind it. So, you know, if I have a TikTok video that got 10 million views, I can put paid ads behind it and it's got 250 million views. Amazing. The only thing I would add to that yeah. is I would also pick a category that's not niche, that has mass appeal so that when you're running those paid ads, your TAM, your total addressable market is huge. Yeah. Everyone in America can buy the product versus a mini Katana. There's only like so many people that will buy so, it. Yeah. The yeah. other thing I really like, um, we were talking about Lumi deodorant for a while. Like if you see the ads that uh, Shannon runs on television, they're literally her speaking into an iPhone the only equipment she has is a ring light around her. And she's told me that. That's how I know that. Otherwise, there's literally no equipment. There's no script. She's just like, let me tell you about how I created this product. It's awesome. It's so genuine. And you see it on, you know, you don't really see that type of stuff on television. And this is a woman who's like, you know, the phone is this far away from her face. You know, there's no background, basically. And I really like, like it's great. Yeah. It, uh, you you know, get blind to ads on TV because they're so overproduced. Totally. Yeah. And so when yeah, you yeah. see somebody that's like, it looks like there's somebody FaceTiming with you through the TV, you pay attention. Yeah. yeah. In fact, oh, when we were thinking about running a TV ads for native, I thought of two different things. One is literally just a white screen for like 29 seconds, especially if we're going to do a Super Bowl ad with the last second just being like native or like a QR code that took you to our website. Because everyone would be like, what the fuck is this thing that's yeah. happening on my television for 29 seconds? Who's doing this ad? And then the other thing I thought of was the exact opposite, which was just a logo and someone saying native, 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 native <laughs> for 30 seconds. And people would be like, what the fuck is this? Uh, the other, the guys who I thought did a good job of this recently was Liquid Death, where they wrote like murderers for hire in New York City. Did you yeah, yeah. That? On the post bills. Yeah. They, like, you know, like, you know, when you're walking past that construction, they'd have posters up and they'd write yeah. murderers for hire and that's it. And there'd be a QR code and you're like, what yeah. is, what is murderers for hire? And, uh, you know, you click the, you, uh, you know, scan the QR code and you were taking a liquid debts website, which is a really smart way to uh, market. I think when people do that kind of stuff, that's like so out of bounds. You're like, this is great. Yeah. There was actually a billboard today. I saw that just said nine out of 10 serial killers grew up drinking milk. <laughs> and then underneath it, it said killermilk.com. And I think it's like a anti-dairy association pushing some message about no dairy. Oh, I thought that was also going to be a liquid death. Action. I know. That's <laughs> I just pulled it up. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So Anyways, the last thing I wanted to say on Mini Katana, one thing that I think he did really well, and it just fits well with the modern consumption of content, is having something you can demonstrate. Something you can show take off. to Costco Roadshow and sample on a table yep. is probably a good product to run ads with. Yeah, his is great because it's so user-friendly. Like, you know, it's so engaging on TikTok. Yeah. But I think there, there might be a little bit of a a paradox between something that's super engaging on TikTok and something that TikTok allows ads against. Because like usually, like I think swords is amazing because you never see swords. And then you're like, okay, this is awesome. But you understand why that they, they don't allow ads for swords. Maybe that's true. I don't know if that's true or not. One of the other things I saw Isaac talking about was slime. Mm -hmm. um, so slime is another example of something that's visual. Everybody will, it's mass market. It's easy to make a ton of videos around. Yeah. I think that's another example of how you could take his strategy and apply to a different product category. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let, let me switch gears because we don't have that much time left. And let's talk about DTC brands on Amazon. You know, Solomon, you wrote this segment and you wrote certain brands aren't on Amazon. Native never was. Another great example is Cuts. Cuts isn't on Amazon. And uh, Mary Berry will admit this, and I don't mind uh, saying this out loud. Uh, when we weren't on Amazon, 
Uh, Mary basically created a competitor deodorant. I don't know if she, if I, if I cared, I would have said something, but like she created a competitor deodorant and put it on Amazon. It wasn't the same formula. It was a different formula with different ingredients and different scents. And she's like, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that Native isn't on Amazon. And so she, you know, the business grew and I think it grew to like $500,000 in sales a month or something meaningful. Maybe it was $50,000. It was something like meaningful, I thought at the time. Um, and then once Native got onto Amazon, it sort of destroyed the business that they'd built up because she was basically buying up the native keyword on Amazon and running ads against it and then taking those customers and up and like, you know, getting them on Amazon. I was never sure if it was the right move or not the right move to sell on Amazon. We never sold until post-sale. And the reason we didn't was actually a repeat purchase rate. Are you smiling? Cause you know what I'm about to say? I'm smiling. Uh, cause I know what you might want to say. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, yeah. Uh, uh, tell me what I want to say later on. Or what you think. Um, though we, we didn't do it because of repeat purchase rate. I was like, our product sucks originally, so we need to, not, but sucks, but like we want to make it better. So I was like, let's go find out what customers like about this product and what customers don't like about this product. And so we give us the ability to email them. And more importantly, give us the ability to run cohort analysis and be like, okay, this cohort is improving, which means this is a better formula. And if you were on Amazon, all of your data became gray right away and you had no idea what repeat purchase rate looked like. And so that was really the reason that we didn't do it. Today, I'm not sure if that's... Yeah, I think you also didn't do it because you were like uh, afraid of what the reviews were going to be like. Oh, yeah. The You know, at the beginning, the native yeah. formula wasn't great and yeah. it got better and better over time as you iterated on the product. And so at the beginning, you were just like, the if I put this on Amazon, it would get three and a half stars. And destroy the business. And then people would see it on Amazon with three and a half stars and not buy it on native stock. That's right. Yeah. yeah. That, that's absolutely the case. And sort of, uh, you're right. I was... A, I was afraid of reviews and uh, like, you know, afraid of um, not understanding information so that I could produce a better product. Ironically, now, uh, Amazon has higher reviews for native deodorant than native's own website, which is kind of crazy. I'm not sure how that had that, that. I'm not sure how that's happened. Would not have happened if I were in. <laughs> um, I talked to um, the guy who started Bloom yesterday at yeah. Grow. And uh, Bloom is what? The flower company? No, Bloom is the athletic greens. Uh, oh, okay. competitor. Yeah, yeah. And so it's on our notes. I'm just putting the price here. He bought a full page Amazon takeover and he paid over seven figures for it. And he said his, his KPI or his ROAS, you know, his KPI was not ROAS on a single day of sales. His KPI was the fact that Costco, Target, and Walmart all hit him up the next day and said, yeah. we need you in our stores. And now he's the only greens powder, and I think best-selling greens powder in Walmart. Wow. Get the fuck out of here. Which is crazy. What a genius. Yeah. I thought it was a really smart use of, of funds. I remember, like, I'd done a few Yahoo takeovers, Yahoo Mail, like, login screen takeovers. Yeah. If there was any remnant. For Hint? Yeah. Remnant inventory there. Oh. And they used to do okay. Like, you know, they had a, a pretty long attribution window, but... Um, this I thought was genius. I didn't know Amazon let you just buy the homepage. I had no idea either. Yeah, but I mean, it, it's, it's really smart. Yeah, I've seen Goalie take it over a bunch. I think you've seen that too. Yeah. Um, they definitely let you do it. Uh, that's a really smart KPI. You know, one of the things that like, um, when we were trying to sell into Target, we bought a bunch of billboards in Minneapolis at Native and we're like, we want the buyers of deodorant to drive around being like, these guys are everywhere. Yeah. We, I, I bought a bunch of Instagram ads specifically in Minneapolis. And I was like, I don't care. Like, you know, spend an extra $50 a day. I'm not looking. It wasn't a conversion campaign. It was brand awareness campaign right. where I was like, I just want eyeballs to see this. So every single time someone opens up an iPhone, they're like, what is this brand doing in the world? But in fact, it was just focused on Minneapolis. And I think there's even restaurants in Minneapolis, like the most expensive restaurant in Minneapolis it's just brands taking out buyers to dinner, being yeah, like, we're sure. this really fits. It's got to be the same for all like the the towns around these headquarters, right? Like, like SC Johnson, yeah. the Walmart, yeah, yeah. Bentonville, and the yeah. Minneapolis for Target. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Have you ever been to Bentonville? I have not. I've been to SC Johnson's town, and I thought it was uh, <laughs> their town. <laughs> their town. Yeah, I like, think like seventy percent of the people in this town work at SC Johnson. Yeah. What town is it? It was somewhere Wisconsin. <laughs> uh, oh, Racine, Wisconsin. Okay. It was very spooky. It was, I mean, it was wintertime too, yeah. but it was like, you're either SC Johnson or, you know, what are you doing here? Yeah. You, you work at McDonald's or you work at SC Johnson or, you know, what are you doing? You know, when you go to the airport in Cincinnati, all of the ads in the airport are like basically systems to integrate CPG brands with like <laughs> yeah. retailers. 
because it like Kroger's there and so is P&G. Yeah. And so those are the ads at the airport, which are hilarious. I've been to Bentonville and they've got the first Sam's Club ever that's called the Five and Dime Store. They still have the sign up. You can buy soft serve ice cream for a nickel still. Wow. Because uh, they're like, we want to keep the original price. And then you can go take a tour of the back office of the Walmart and they still have Sam Walton's original office. You can see through the glass, but you obviously can't, you can't go inside. Not obviously, but you can't go inside, but you can see Sam Walton's like original office, which is pretty crazy. Wow. Okay. Well, anyway, tell me what you guys think of this. Should every brand that's on uh direct, should every brand on Shopify be on Amazon or no? Like should cuts? I think cuts should be on Amazon. I think it hurt it, the brand. I feel like it doesn't. I mean, worst case you get probably better than average customer service. I don't know what you do with returns as a brand. If they like, clothing is, you know, clothing, your, your returns are 20 to 40% on average. So I don't know how that would be handled. Yeah. But I think if you're selling something, if you're spending money on ads and you're selling something that has decent mass appeal, you should be on Amazon because that's where a lot of people go to start their search. What about Montclair? Should Montclair be on Amazon? Definitely not. Okay. But so they're probably on Verishop, which is like the Amazon for rich people. Yeah. There's, so there's some uh, middle room between Amazon, being on Amazon and not being on Amazon. And so what is that? Like, you know, Canada Like luxury products should not be on Amazon for Canada sure. Goose? Uh, no. They should not be on Amazon? No, definitely not. It's a thousand dollar jacket. What about Super on Puff? No. No. Really? That's a $300 jacket, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Three, two fifty, three hundred. Why not? Why shouldn't they be on there? I don't know. I feel like that's... Adam's like, shoes? I don't know what the... Oh, Adam's? Probably not. Well, maybe actually it should. Yeah, definitely. I think Adam's probably could. Yeah, and my, my logic is, um, you know, if you're spending a bunch of money on Facebook acquiring customers for every dollar in ad spend that you spend, you could probably generate 20 cents, 10 cents in revenue on Amazon. Yeah. And so you're just leaving that on the floor. Yeah. Well, I've definitely seen it too, where like usually Amazon the two months after you have a big month on your own store will reflect your store's increase. So if you crushed March, then April and May will be really big on Amazon for you. Why? I don't know. I think it's some sort of a delayed response. Like if they're not going to buy it right away, they'll buy it later. But, you know, a lot of people tend to go to Amazon. Yeah, I don't know what the stats are of like, you know, uh, for every dollar in e-commerce revenue, 25 cents is on Amazon or something like that, but that's 25 cents is generated. Let's say there's a trillion dollars of e-commerce revenue in uh, the United States per year, $250 million will be through Amazon. God, I don't know what the percentages are, but it's a very high percentage that's through Amazon. And I think there's a lot of people who are like, I can't go buy from all these random websites all the time. For sure. I just want to go to Amazon because I know that it's not a scam. I'll be able to get a refund if I want to. And I've already got my payment and address information in there. Yeah, I think also convenience. Like for um, for Valentine's Day, I, bought, I sent my mom a flower from uh, Venus at Fleur. Yeah. And it was, you one know. One flower? One, one rose. Wow. Okay, wow. Love and, it. Uh, how much was that? So it was fifteen dollars. No, 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 <laughs> fifty. <laughs> My mom would kill me. Um, it was fifty bucks, but it arrived completely broken, like absolutely yeah. slaughtered. Yeah, you know, it took thirty seconds with a ch an AI chatbot on Amazon to get a full refund. You bought it off of Amazon. Yeah, bought it off it because it shipped. It would, it arrived the next day. Wow. Even when I go travel somewhere and I'm on vacation, I'm like, oh, you know, I want to buy this here, but let me just see if it, because I'm in France at the Louvre and I see a hat and I'm like, cool, I want to buy this hat, but I don't have any space in my luggage. So let me see if I can buy it on Amazon and it'll be at my house when I arrive. Right. I think, yeah, you're right about all the stuff you said, which is when you should be on there. Yeah. And I have one more, one yeah. more comment, which is, I think there's a ton of brands that will spend a bunch of money building a brand new category through Facebook ads, and then they won't capture the Amazon piece of the pie. And so that leaves room for a competitor to exist. Like, you know, Athletic Blue. Greens, yeah. yeah, Athletic Greens doesn't put their product on Amazon, so it gives space to Bloom to exist. I agree with everything you said. I still think that there are times where brands shouldn't be on Amazon. For sure. And not just the Canada Gooses of the world, but I think that like um, if you're trying to understand repeat purchase for yeah, if you're yeah. a new brand, yeah, and you're trying to work on product, basically I think if you're 
if you're a new brand, probably the first six months, uh, you got to figure out your own stuff and figure out what ads work before you can get onto Amazon. Yeah, for sure. If you're doing less than 10 or 20 million in revenue, you shouldn't be worried about Amazon. You should be worried about demand generation for your product yeah. and for your brand via Facebook ads. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next time to cut through the noise in CPG, retail, and e-commerce. And if you enjoyed this episode, then why not share it with a friend? And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss the next one. 